The best kept secret of the Christian faith. I like that. Why aren't Christians shouting it from the rooftop? Well, maybe maybe we should be and maybe we are now. Each week as a church, we have teaching from the Bible. We've been going through a New Testament book of Galatians. And for the next 25 minutes or so, I just want to look at the next part in that letter for us. The Bible, if you're not familiar with it, is split into two big chunks, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The New Testament contains stories about the life and work of Jesus. And then after that, a series of different letters written by the Apostle Paul, who was a man who started a lot of churches and then wrote letters to them afterwards to kind of keep in touch and to correct them and to help them when they're in trouble and things like that. So we're in the, we're in the letter to the Galatians. Galatia was a, a region that is now modern-day Turkey. And uh, having started the church there, Paul then returns um, or, or returns to home and hears of some trouble that started in the church. So he gets very angry and writes to them. We've been going through that. So we're going to read from Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 21. Here we go. Well, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, that is, non-Jewish people. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible or used to hearing the Bible read, there's quite a, quite a number of confusing ideas in that short passage alone. And we're going to spend some time just working some of those out together. Now, the verses that I read contain for us some of the most important verses in the entire Christian message. They are the heart of the Christian doctrine and what it means to be a Christian. And in this bit in particular, it centers around an argument or a story, a story about an argument between two of the early church leaders, Peter, who was a follower of Jesus, one of the first, and Paul who had started the church. And there's a discussion. And what we read is essentially Paul's summary of what he said to Peter to explain to him why he was wrong. So, you know, when you have those arguments with people and you, you walk away kind of reciting it in your head, going, I should have said this, or I wish I said that. What we've kind of got here is, is Paul's attempt to go, this is what I did say. And this is why how Peter was behaving was so wrong. And the heart of it, the heart of what we read and the heart of the Christian message centers around the theme and the, the, the idea of approval. Peter 
had been eating with his friends and then some other people had come and it separated for, from them in order to get approval from this group of people that just, just arrived. And that sense of searching for approval is what drives many of our behaviours. It's what drives some men to commit crimes or to work ridiculously long hours or to behave in an immoral way or against our conscience. It's that drive and that search for approval. That was what was going on here and we see that in our own hearts as well. The reason for that is because we are uh, an ultra-social species, the human races. That's what the moral psychologist, a man named Jonathan Haidt from the States, he says that we're an ultra-social species. In commenting on this, he says that human beings, um, he says, having strong social relationships strengthens the immune system. It extends life. It speeds recovery from surgery, and it reduces the risks of depression and other anxiety-related disorders. In other words, it is healthier to eat donuts with friends than it is to eat broccoli alone. Just don't tell my kids that. And they must eat their broccoli. We are social creatures and our health is increased by our social interactions. The reason for that is because we're made for connection. We're made for connection with other people. And we know that. Okay, so, so studies have been done recently that, that show that on average, um, we, we interact with our smartphones over 31,000 times in a year. Um, which some of you think, well, that's a little bit lower than I was expecting, <laughs> or than I think my teenage daughter would interact with hers. No, so, so 31,000 times a year, which on average works out to be uh, around 4.3 minutes every day of our waking lives. Every 4.3 minutes that we're awake, we interact with our phones. And the reason for that is clear. Our lives are on these phones, aren't they? We have our, our calendars and uh, we find out about the weather and we watch videos of cats playing pianos on our phones. They're so important to us. But also our phone is a phone. Like, who knew? We use this to connect with people. We have our messages and our uh, our emails and our anti-social, I mean, our social media apps on there. That's where we go. Uh, and actually, studies again show that Facebook users, on average, they reckon, spend 50 minutes a day in the Facebook product line, interacting with the Facebook product line. So there's, there's Facebook, there's Messenger, there's Instagram, and there's WhatsApp. Of WhatsApp alone, 1.2 billion people are on WhatsApp. Apparently, it increases by a million people a day. 50 minutes a day, people spend their lives on these social media apps. Why? Because we're made for connection. We're made to engage with people. And learning to engage with people is crucial for us. I mean, kids learn this early on. They learn quickly that hitting someone over the head with a toy is not the best way to get ahead in life. And suddenly their parents are concerned by what it shows about the way they're raising their children. And so as parents, we steer our children to not hit other children, but instead to share with other children. Because we know the pain of vulnerability and social shame. We know what it's like to have people turn their backs on us. So we, we raise our kids to share their toys and to be nice to one another. And as kids grow up, they learn this quickly. And before long, they're forming social groups where they're connecting with people of similar interests to themselves. And you, you see the, the kids who are into football hang out in one bit and the kids who play Barbie dolls. I don't know if kids do that. They do that in one another bit. And kids learn early on that to do that, we form cliques, we form tribes. 
When fully grown, we align ourselves as adults to political parties or to isms, whether communism or capitalism or something, by way of identifying and saying, this is who I am. This is my crowd. This is where I get my approval from. We build boundaries or we, we build walls to keep Mexicans out because we're so scared because we must find approval and safety. In fact, the, the, most, uh, the sharpest place that we see this in society is actually in, in the secondary school or the college cafeteria because that's where kids kind of form their, their, their most vulnerable insecure and so cleave and hold fast to their social groupings. We're going to watch a quick uh, video clip now of the film from a film called Mean Girls where it gives an insight into the world of the high school cafeteria and the different social interactions that take place and why it matters. Let's watch this. Here, this map is going to be your guide to North Shore. Now, where you sit in the cafeteria is crucial. You've got everybody there. You've got your freshmen, Roxy guys, preps, baby jocks, Asian nerds, cool Asians, Varsity jocks, unfriendly black bodies, girls who eat their feelings, girls who don't eat anything, desperate wannabes, burnout, sexually active bandies, the greatest people you will ever meet, and the worst, beware of the platform. And that, in a nutshell, is what's going on here in the book of Galatians, kind of, in a roundabout sort of way. Um, Peter's so concerned about what people think of him that he pulls away from his friends, he dishonors, he shuns people in order to gain approval. There are certain people we know that if we get seen hanging out with them or if people think that we're like them, so we distance ourselves from them. That's what, Paul, that's what Peter does, and Paul's furious about it. And the reason he's furious about it is because he sees that the way Peter's behaving is in direct contradiction to the very heart of the Christian message, which is about approval. The word Christian means a number of different things to people. You can use the word Christian to mean a kind person or a moral person, or in some cases, maybe even just an English person. But that's not the essence and the heart of what a Christian is. I met someone yesterday who was, a, who was a surgeon back in his country. And imagine if I said to him, what does a surgeon do? And he replied saying, oh, surgeons, surgeons wear green shirts. Well, that's true. Surgeons wear green shirts. But that's not close to the heart or the core of what surgeons do, is it? In the same way with, with Christians. They might behave in certain ways. They may go to church. They may read their Bibles, etc. They may pray. But the heart of what a Christian's about is contained in these words that we read out. And there's two words that I read out that are, I suppose they're technical terms. That Probably when you heard them, if you're not familiar with them, they bounced off or they just washed over. But we're going to look at those two words together and explain why it is that they sum up for us the Christian message. It's these words justified and righteousness. Two words that Paul describes. He says we're not justified by works of the law and he says we don't get righteousness by works of the law. What does he mean? Well, to be justified is a legal term, and it means essentially to be approved or to be validated, to be acquitted, to be shown to be in the right, for someone's opinion to change how they see us. There was a story in the American press a number of years ago uh, about a guy at school who'd gotten in trouble because he had punched a classmate and punched him so hard that it knocked him out on the floor. And uh, a lot of people saw him do this, and so there was no question of his guilt. He was guilty. And they came up to him, and the head teacher said, right, that's it. You're going 
you're out of here. You're not going to be a member of this school anymore. And the boy said, wait, wait, wait. Look in his pocket. Look in his pocket. So the guy was just lying on the floor and they, they looked in his pocket and his hand was in his pocket holding a pistol. He said, I punched him and knocked him out because he was about to shoot someone. And suddenly the whole scene changed. And this boy went from being expelled to being promoted, I suppose, and being head boy of the school. The situation hadn't changed. What had changed is the perspective on it. This individual had become justified. That's what justification is, to be shown or to be proved to be in the right. The trouble is, the Bible's message says that we aren't those who've been wrongly accused of something. The Bible's message is that we are those who are guilty. We're the ones who've done wrong. And to understand that, we need to understand an old-fashioned word, that the Bible uses to describe our wrongdoing, it's the word sin. And the word sin comes from a Greek term that's from the world of archery. And it means essentially to, to miss the target. To sin is to miss the target. And we understand that because by nature we're target finders. Um, you know, wherever you look and whatever your eyes are fixed on is the target that you're focused on. If I want my kids' attention, often I have to get them to look at me because I know if they're looking at me, there's a slim chance I have their attention. But if they're looking elsewhere, I have no idea. We're target finders. And as human beings, we've become very good at creating things, whether bows or guns or missiles, whatever, that are useful at hitting a target. In verse 16, it says this. We'll have it on the screen. It says, no one is justified A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. When Paul says that, he means someone isn't approved or acquitted by trying hard. Or another way of putting it is no one hits the target simply by working hard. No one hits the target simply by working hard. The reason for that is twofold. Because in Galatians 15, he used this word that, uh, again, many of us find to be very archaic and old. But he says, we are, you, you know, we as Jews are not Gentile sinners. He uses the word sinners. And the word sinner is a word that the Bible uses to describe the human race. If you're a member of the human race, the Bible says that you're a sinner. Which immediately we take to mean, oh, so it means that I'm a nasty, horrible, unkind, unclean person. Which isn't exactly what it means. To be a sinner is to mean that we have two essential problems, our nature and our choices. Our nature, we have the problem that we have sinful natures, the Bible says, which means that our, we, we can't live as we should. Our aim is always going to be off with what we deem to be important or necessary for us. Now, sometimes in the way that we live, we might get lucky and we do something right, a number of years ago, um, I went to a friend's farm and he let us do some clay pigeon shooting. There was a group of guys that went from the church and uh, I was excited to be given a shotgun because for the first time in my life I had you know, real power and I felt the importance of this weapon. And it was my turn to go first. So they showed, the instructor showed us how to do clay pigeon shooting. You know, it flies up and then you, you, know, you hit it. Simple. And the first, I was the first up. You have to say the word pull, I think. Then out they go. They fly this, this clay out of the trap and you aim and you, you shoot it. My first go, I got six out of six. And I tell you, I mean, for those few minutes, 
I was, I don't know, I don't know what they thought of me, but I thought I'd discovered my real calling in life. For, for those few minutes, I thought to myself, this is it. All this time, I've been trying to work out what I'm good at. And now I've stumbled across it. I'm really good at shooting things. I'm really good at aiming. Six out of six. All the men were incredibly jealous. You could see they, they looked at me with a newfound respect, like, don't mess with Jez. He's, you know, he's a shooter. He's marksman of the year award. This was genuinely going through my mind. Everyone has their go. And then we come up for the second go. And everybody around me was excited to see what I would do. But they were excited to see if I would fall flat on my face. And that's exactly what I did. The next round, I got zero out of six. And, and I kind of went from being like, I'm the greatest to, huh, turns out it's beginner's luck. <laughs> and then the rest of the day, I was thinking maybe one or two, but nothing like the original six out of six. I got lucky. My aim was good for a while. And then the real me took over. And that's like life, that we have moments of inspiration. And we think, I've got it. I've missed it. I've got it. I've missed it. The reason for that, the Bible says, is because of our natures, that we are people who are filled with ourselves. We're almost drunk on our own self-importance. The Bible says that we are created to know God. But we have become so enamored and impressed by ourselves that well, we're intoxicated with ourselves and our greatness and our grandeur and our legacy and our reputation and what people think of us. And the invention of the smartphone has just only proved to show our narcissism even more. Now we just have selfies and we have to spend ages trying to get the right angle of our jawline and put our hands in the right place to take these wonderful pictures of ourselves because have you seen ourselves? It's a bit like when um, studies have been done to show when anthropologists have visited tribes and they've introduced a mirror for the first time. It causes havoc in a society. Because you imagine never being able to see your reflection and then suddenly there's a mirror. It exposes and creates a lot of mental, problem, mental health problems, but it exposes all of your inner self-fascination. We're drunk with our own greatness. A bit like you see when the, when the police, they arrest someone who they suspect of drink, drink driving and they, they get them to perform a series of tests, like walk in a straight line and they do it. Or, you know, put your finger on the end of your nose. And, you know, maybe as a teenager, you can remember your parents saying, are you drunk? Put your finger on the end of your nose. Like, this is easy. Why can't I do this? My nose has moved every time. It's just not fair. You can't aim straight when you're drunk in life, generally. And in the the, the reason the Bible says we're sinners is because our nature is so full of ourselves, we can't aim straight. We can't hit the target by trying hard because of our natures on the one hand. And our second problem is not just our nature, but the choices that we make, which is in large part the result of our nature. Our heads are turned so easily. You know, because you, you can be a moral person and think, I'm going to... I'm going to live well. I'm going to be a respectable member of my community. I'm going to love my spouse. I'm going to look after my kids. I'm going to, I don't know, help old ladies download emails. Whatever it is for you, you think, I'm going to be a good person. And you find your nature makes it difficult for you. But then you also notice that your head is so easily turned and distracted. It's a bit like um, in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, where um, Kevin Costner or Brian Adams, which one? One of them. The, Kevin Costner. Brian Adams sung about it, didn't he? It was, yes. Kevin Costner, he's lining up and he's got to split an arrow and he's Robin Hood, so of course he can do that. And then Maid Marian comes along and blows in his ear and pings the arrow off into the woods. He was distracted by a woman. And women distract us men. Or men distract us women, us ladies. Whatever it is, we're distracted by power. 
distracted by relationships, distracted by the promise of wealth, distracted by the idea of a long life and health, and we devote ourselves to different things. And we live in such a way to say, this is what I'm running after. And as a result, we can never hit the target that we're aiming at. So when Paul says no one's justified by works of the law, what he means is no one can hit the target by trying hard because of your nature and because of how easily your head is turned by various things. And actually in verse 21, we read it, we'll put it up on the screen. He says, if righteousness were through the law, then Jesus died for no purpose. In other words, the reason Jesus died is because righteousness isn't available through works of the law. And so that's our second technical term. Our first one was justified and justification. Our second one is righteousness. And in the English language, the word righteous is a moral one. It has to, people think of it about basically being a good person. But actually, in its original sense, righteousness has to do with relationships. It's about a relationship with someone else. To have righteousness is to be in good standing with someone. It's about connection with God. When Paul says that people cannot get righteousness through works of the law, he says, cannot get a right relationship with God through trying hard. Cannot get the acceptance you want. Cannot get the approval you want. Paul's confrontation of Peter, he calls him, a, in the confrontation, he calls him a hypocrite. He says, because you're a Christian, and yet the way you're behaving is anti-Christian. You're someone who is saying... The only way you can get right relationship with God is by trusting in Jesus. And yet the way you're behaving by separating yourself off from these non-Jewish people and only eating with Jewish people is hypocritical. And it's a denial of what the heart of the Christian message is all about. It's a message of connection with God. Because Jesus, he lived in such a way for us that they called him a friend of sinners. He was someone who was known for hanging out with the waifs and strays, the reprobates in his society. And he did that before it was cool to do so. I mean, these days, it's kind of every social justice warrior wants to be known as someone who loves the marginalized. But Jesus, in a society where the marginalized were dirty and unclean, and the marginalized and the, the addicts and the prostitutes and the homeless made you unclean before God, in a society like that, it was not cool you didn't get virtue points by hanging out with people like that. And yet Jesus did. When they said, you're a friend of sinners, they basically meant was you're in league with those who are unclean. You're dirty. But the reason Jesus did it is because he wanted to show us how God treats each and every one of us. That we are those who by nature and by choice are not justified. We're not in right relationship with God. And yet Jesus came to befriend people like us. He came to become the companion of sinners. That word companion is an old Latin word that is formed of two words, com and pane. Uh, com means together with, and pane, we have the word panini, it means bread, to eat bread with. A companion is someone who eats bread with another. Jesus came to eat bread with people. Peter was eating bread with these people, and then wanted to impress these people and so shunned them and ate bread with them. He was behaving hypocritically. He wasn't behaving like Jesus did. The heart of the Christian message is a message of approval that you do not get approved by God by trying hard to hit the target. You do not get right with God 
by separating yourself off and living a holy and pure life. doesn't work. And in verse 20, we'll put it up on the screen. One of the most significant verses in all the Bible, Paul says of himself, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And actually to help us unearth and unpack a bit more about what this means, we're going to watch another video. Um, This is a video of a man named Billy Graham, who is a name that might be familiar to some of us. As a Christian, he has explained the message of Jesus to more people in human history than any other person. He's traveled the world and addressed crowds all across the planet. And his central message was all about the cross of Christ and why Jesus died. And uh, we're going to hand over to him for the next four minutes as he explains more about the cross of Christ and what it means. As I look back over my life, it's full of surprises. I never thought I would become friends with people in different countries all over the world. I see how God's hand guided me. When I began preaching many years ago, it was not with any thoughts that I'd be preaching to large audiences. God has done this. Our country is in great need of a spiritual awakening. Of all the things that I've seen and heard, there's only one message that can change people's lives and hearts. There is a way if you come by the way of the cross. I want to tell people about the meaning of the cross. Not the cross that hangs on the wall or around someone's neck. We receive our freedom purchased by the ransom at the cross. But the real cross of Christ. The cross expresses the great love of God for man. It's scarred and blood-stained. His was a rugged cross. His real purpose for coming was to die. I know that many will react to this message, but it is the truth. You see, the Bible teaches that all of us are wrong. We've all gone astray. We've everyone turned to his own way. And when we turn to our own way, we go astray from God's way. And that includes the whole human race. On that cross, God was laying on Jesus our sins. They not only put nails in his hands, but before that, they scourged him. And then they took that cross and made him carry the cross, which was in his weakened condition was almost impossible. But he carried that cross to a place outside of Jerusalem. And then they put nails in his hands. Now, I don't understand all about it. There are many things about the cross and about salvation that I do not understand. And I'm not told that I have to understand it all. I'm told that I'm to believe. 
and anybody can believe. A blind man can believe, a deaf man can believe, an old person can believe, a young person can believe. And that word believe means commit. I commit my life totally to Him. Jesus Christ from the cross says, I will save you. I will forgive you. I will change you. I'll make you a new person if you come to the cross by repentance and faith. Come to Christ. When you come to Christ, you come by the way of repentance. Repent means to change. To change your way of living and turn from your sins and turn to Jesus Christ and say, I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. And I know that you're the only one that can change me. When we get baptized, what we're, we're doing, like the Apostle Paul, is we're saying, I have been crucified with Christ. When Jesus died, I died. Or I'm now asking that Jesus' death becomes a death for me. Because all of us are target misses by nature and choice. None of us are right with God, and we can't get right with God by behaving well. I have seen, and I know something about my own kind of sinful heart. I know how steeply selfish I am and how impossible it is to change. And the only way we change is by trusting and committing ourselves to Christ. That Jesus' death on the cross was a death for us so that we could be justified so that we could hit the target, so that we could be righteous, so that we could have a right relationship with God. And when we get baptised, what we're doing is we're saying, that death on the cross was a death for me. I see that when Jesus died, he died because he loved me. And that's what Paul could say. I mean, he, he's writing some, how oh, was it, like 20 years after Jesus' death. He wasn't there as Jesus was killed and as Jesus was dying on the cross, but yet he can say Theologically, he says, Jesus' death was a death for me because the Son of God loved me, Paul said. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And when we go to the sea in a few moments' time, we're going to go to Splash Point and we're going to walk out so that it's shallow or deep enough to kind of up to our waist and we're going to lower the people being baptised into the water and then bring them back up again. And the lowering into the water is to enact. It's, this is an ancient symbol that people have been doing for thousands of years. It's a symbol of dying, of going into the grave. The water represents the grave and chaos. It's going into the grave and it's being raised to new life. But we're dying not because, not because we're dying and being raised not because of our own strength and brilliance and we can conquer the grave. What we're doing is we're identifying with Jesus and saying, when he died, I died. And when he rose, I rose. And I now want to live my life for him and put him first in my life. We're going to, we identify with the one who came to quite literally break bread with us and whose body was broken for us. And he said of himself, my body I give to you. Eat every one of you, in remembrance of me. My blood has been poured out for you. Drink, every one of you, in remembrance of what I've done for you. So ever since then, Christians have every week been 
eating bread and drinking wine as a way of remembering the companionship of Jesus, that the friend of sinners has identified himself with us. And now we put our hope in him. When we eat of the bread and drink of the juice, we say, Jesus, your death was for me. Your life is in me. So we're going to finish this message this morning by breaking bread together. We're going to, there's tables at the front and at the sides. And if you're gluten-free, there's bread over here. And uh, this is our opportunity as Christians to break some bread and take a shot glass of juice and use this as a way of enacting and remembering Jesus' death on the cross for us. And what we're doing when we take this is we say, Jesus, you hit the mark. You hit the target. You were right with God. I will never hit the target on my own. I will never get right with God through trying hard. And so instead, Jesus, I'm trusting in your death as being enough to forgive me and to help me. But before we break bread and drink the juice, the band are going to come up and they're going to just play a song that's going to be useful for us to reflect on more of the meaning of Jesus' death. We're going to sit and listen to this. And then after that, we'll stand, sing along and break bread and juice. I should say as well that the communion part of the meeting is, a, is something that's for people who have decidedly put their trust in Jesus. And so if you're a guest with us and you're not sure what you believe, not sure if you're a Christian, if you call yourself that, you're welcome to just watch this one. Or if you'd like, they're going to be hosting people at the tables. They'd love to chat to you. If you want to go to them, uh, they'll be happy to pray with you and talk more about Christian things. Uh, Equally, as a church, when we go to the table, we're going to also bring our offerings to God this morning. Often we'd pass a bucket round as a chance for us to worship God by giving money, if you like, as a way of sacrificing, God, I trust you with my stuff. But today, we're going to ask the hosting team to be at the tables with the buckets. Um, And if you're, again, a Christian member of the church, this is an opportunity for you to give financially to God and to the work of God in this town, um, and then also take the bread and juice for yourselves. We're not buying the bread and juice by doing this. I hope you understand. We're just putting it there for convenience sake. Let me pray and then hand over to the band. Father, I thank you that you sent your son and that Jesus, you died a death on the cross for us, in our place, for our sin, in order to justify us, in order to make us right with God, in order to give us a right relationship with the Father. Thank you for your love and acceptance. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you're here with us because you didn't just die on Good Friday, but you were raised to life on Easter Sunday. And now we celebrate your life in this room and your activity in the lives of people in this church. Amen.